one of the important things as well is that I run without any corporate PAC money, so I don't take a dime from luxury developers. I don't take a dime from pharmaceutical corporations. We are a people-led movement because we are here to advocate for families, for healthcare for every American, for love and acceptance of every American because that is what this country is about. When Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, now the youngest woman ever elected to Congress and one of its most recognizable figures, made that speech, she was still a long-shot candidate, primary challenging one of the most powerful Democrats in the House, a dedicated corporate fundraiser who'd held the seat for almost two decades. And she wasn't even on the ballot yet. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at the stories of people who have it. In our last season, I told you some pretty grim stories about a man who used an auto parts empire inheritance to start a private military, a TV producer more powerful than any senator, a foreign prince who had a Washington Post journalist dismembered, Stephen Miller. But one story from our first episode about Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell showed us something that would pop up in literally every other episode. It's a lesson from a political science class McConnell briefly taught in the 1970s. Here's John Cheeves of Lexington, Kentucky's Herald Leader. I got this one of his students at the time. He went into the first day of class walked up to the chalkboard to these political science students and said, I'm going to teach you the three things you need to succeed in politics and to build a political party. These are the three things you need. And he scribbled on the chalkboard and stepped away. And the three things were money, money, and money. Money and its power over our political system showed up everywhere. It's how Speaker Nancy Pelosi built power before she'd run for Congress, how Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos became, well, Secretary of Education. And it's how Charles Koch built a political network that's nearly as powerful as the Republican Party itself. It truly seems like money always wins. So for this first episode of Who Is? Season 2, I want to talk about if it's even possible to fight back against big money. Don't worry, we'll be covering a lot of craven power mongering and all that later in the season. But for now, how can anyone take on the seemingly invincible force of money and the candidates funded by the donor class? Last season, I spoke with Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! I think the only answer to people not being satisfied with candidates that are out there is people running themselves. And that starts at the local level and city councils, on school boards. City councils, school boards. But what about Congress? For the most part, people don't run because it's incredibly time-consuming and incredibly expensive. And that's one big reason why representatives in many districts don't have very much in common with the people they're supposed to be representing. Before working on this campaign, my idea of a congressman or a congresswoman was a white, middle-aged lawyer. And I did not think, unless you fit that mold, you had any sort of shot at winning a seat in Congress. That's Noreen Actor, Deputy District Director for now Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and formerly a volunteer organizer on AOC's long-shot congressional campaign. A candidate challenging the status quo who didn't fit the mold really irked a lot of people who uh, do 
fit the mold. Welcome to Hannity. A big weekend celebration for the radical, socialist, far-left Democrats in this country. There she is, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, suggesting that this great country of ours is garbage. Unless you do exactly what Dr. Ocasio-Cortez says, the entire human race has only 12 years to live. I used to love it when Hillary Clinton would come on TV because I thought that it would make it so much easier for us in November and in 2020, but I'm over Hillary. This is my new girl. I love to see her on TV. I think it's hilarious. I do too. Uh, I think I'm going to donate to her campaign because I want her to go as far as possible in the Democratic Party. Maybe she could run on, on Biden's ticket. Maybe it could be Biden-Cortez. I like the sound of that. What could she possibly be doing that's getting these guys so riled up? Who is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Women like me aren't supposed to run for office. I wasn't born to a wealthy or powerful family. Mother from Puerto Rico, dad from the South Bronx. That is the campaign video, which might have been your first introduction to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from her 2018 primary run against incumbent Joe Crowley. AOC was born in the Bronx in 1989 to a working class family, her mother from Puerto Rico and her dad, also Puerto Rican, a Bronx native. The family spends a few years in the Bronx, but in order to send Alexandria to a better school, they move to Yorktown Heights and affluent suburb of New York, up the Hudson in Westchester County. I was born in 1988 and also lived in the area, but we didn't know each other. As a student at Yorktown High School, Alexandria gravitated to science. In her senior year, she took second place in a major science fair for microbiology, for something about roundworms I don't understand. At the time, she wanted to go into medicine, aspiring to be an OBGYN. For college... Boston University, where she would major in economics and international relations. But as she's starting her sophomore year, she gets a phone call. It's her mother. She actually learned that her father passed away while she was in class, and she says she left class and got in a taxi to go take care of that, but she had to be back at school and working a week later. This is Aida Chavez, a political reporter for The Intercept. Aida was one of the first national reporters to cover AOC's primary campaign in 2018. She didn't really have the time to mourn because she couldn't afford to. And so that combined with the fact that her father passed away without a will. And so her family had to go through this legal battle in the surrogate's court in the county. Those things, I think, helped radicalize her combined with the fact that her father was also the breadwinner of the family. And so though he didn't have much money in the beginning of his life, and he ended up having a small business. And so when he passed away, that also meant that her family lost their main source of income. And so that's actually why she had to get two more jobs and had to work like endless hours to help her mom and family make ends meet. Not only did Ocasio-Cortez have to deal with the loss, but because her father died without a will, she had to deal with the legal processes that followed. According to Chavez's profile for The Intercept, AOC saw, quote, firsthand how attorneys appointed by the court to administer an estate can enrich themselves at the expense of the families struggling to make sense of the bureaucracy, end quote. It wouldn't be the last time AOC would see families struggling with bureaucracy. She gets an internship in Senator Ted Kennedy's Foreign Affairs Immigration Constituent Office, 
and as one of the few Spanish speakers in the office at the time, she regularly fielded calls from panicked mothers who came home to missing family members. She saw firsthand how our legislators can actually help their constituents, and how sometimes that isn't possible. But then things got less possible. In a Reddit AMA, Ocasio-Cortez wrote about why she left Washington in 2010. Quote, I left a possible career in government shortly after the Citizens United ruling. If money was going to rule politics and work against families, I didn't want any part of it. Especially, I think, in the wake of Citizens United, I just felt like working class people were kind of locked out in a very permanent way from politics and from pursuing elected office themselves. It was always an uphill battle. These these influences have always existed in politics, but it was really Citizens United that when that passed, I was like, you know, at this point, influencing our communities, we have to work directly with them. Money wins elections. And after Citizens United, it became a lot easier for moneyed interests to pour a lot more money into the political process. AOC graduated college in 2011 and moved back home. As a result of her father's death and the financial crisis, her family was at risk of losing their home. Her mother was cleaning houses and AOC started bartending and waiting tables, but was also involved in activism and nonprofit work on the side, until an old man from Brooklyn kvetched onto the scene. The lesson to be learned, and it is a profound political lesson, is that when people stand together, when people are prepared to fight back, there is nothing that cannot be accomplished. In 2016, Ocasio-Cortez volunteered for Bernie Sanders' campaign for president. There was a lot of hope from the progressive left throughout the primary. Bernie seemed like he really had a chance, but it didn't happen. And the general election is even worse for the progressive movement. You know what happens. As, I guess, shocking or upsetting as that primary was and the general election was, rather, the general election especially, um, Mm. I decided to continue focusing on what can we do? How can we push the needle forward? And so I put my stuff with some friends in a 20-year-old Subaru, and we decided to drive cross-country and talk to people in Ohio. We went to Flint, Michigan. We went to Indiana And we eventually went to Standing Rock. That is the Native American reservation where activists are fighting the construction of the Dakota Access oil pipeline. Here's Aida Chavez. So when I was asking her about her political awakening, obviously like the financial crisis and her own material conditions helped shape her politics. But it was actually Standing Rock where she knew, I have to run for office. And she had done stuff for the Sanders campaign. She had been doing work in education organizing. But she mentioned that when she was at Standing Rock, she saw with her own eyes how corporations had militarized themselves against Americans just for profit, fossil fuel profits. As AOC and her friends left Standing Rock, they recorded parting thoughts in a Facebook Live video. There's carpool karaoke and the car which they had borrowed breaks down it's the middle of winter but the trip has made an impact this generation if you are alive if you are present if you are awake in america right now you are at a very you are a very 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 important 
person. You're at a very important inflection point in this country and what we choose. Now we get to choose. While Ocasio-Cortez was on this trip, a process was going on that would be the start of her campaign. Groups like Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats, organizations founded by former Sanders organizers, were taking nominations from communities for people they could draft to run for Congress. Back in 2016, we put out a call for nominations, trying to capture the diversity of background, of experience, of the American electorate, the people that aren't currently represented in office. We got over 10,000 nominations. Out of those 10,000 nominations, we found Alexandria. AOC returned from her activism trip and met with brand new Congress and agreed to run. Remember, to a campaign like this, money is important. Hello, everyone. This is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of Ocasio 2018 and Brand New Congress. First of all, I want to thank everyone so much out there for your support, your volunteer um, hours, your canvassing, your phone calls and texting have made this campaign really make a splash here in New York City. Noreen Actor, who would go on to become one of candidate Ocasio-Cortez's key organizers, explained. One thing that I learned uh, over the course of the campaign that is that uh, powerful really means you're good at fundraising. And so not just fundraising for yourself, but fundraising for your allies. And it's really that money that translates into power. And we just really rejected that premise. So instead of having a representative who would continue this practice we have in our party and in our government of being beholden to large donors and to really rely on this money in politics kind of vicious cycle. We wanted to elect a representative who would reject outright that corporate PAC money and really be beholden to the small donors in the district that were sending that person to Congress. Let's go back to how she joined the campaign. It was June of 2017. It was a super hot day. It was in the middle of Ramadan, so we were out there, those of us who were fasting, kind of on an empty stomach, but uh, we were there for the cause. And the whole time that it was going on, I noticed there was a woman in a black dress and black pumps standing there very patiently listening to all the speakers, not like the rest of the attendees who, you know, were kind of milling in, milling out. Some folks were like ducking into the shade to get some relief. Others weren't. And she just stood there the whole time in the blazing heat on her pumps. And kind of at the end, after about two or two and a half hours, she approached the organizer and asked if she could make a few remarks as she was running for Congress. And uh, he agreed. And when she went up, she kind of went up guns blazing, saying, you know, we need Medicare for all. We need to abolish ICE. We, you know, this country needs bold leadership and a bold vision. And it was like a breath of fresh air. I was completely moved. And I immediately felt like this was a candidate that I needed to support and help however I could. And AOC would need the help. Her opponent was one of the most powerful Democrats in Congress. Joe Crowley was, I believe, the fourth in line to be Speaker of the House. He was a very powerful Democratic lawmaker who had represented New York 14 for many years. Joe Crowley hadn't actually lived in the district for years. He had a house in Virginia where his family lived, his kids went to school in Virginia, 
and he must have had some kind of property in the district that he would spend time at once in a while, but he hadn't lived in the district in years. And the district had changed a lot, it had become more diverse. It's almost 40% immigrants and around 70% people of color. You just look around at this district and it's so diverse. How is it that just like five Irish dudes handed this seat to each other for the last 50 years? How, like, how is that even? I mean, it's possible in New York. Representatives are supposed to be representative. It's in the name of the job. But Congress isn't really representative of America. I mean, when you look at the current makeup of Congress, it is majority white male. I think the average age, I believe, is about 60 years of age. And when we have the same members of people in office for so long, uh, for you know, two plus decades, for more than a generation, uh, they kind of do tend to stay out of touch with what's going on in their own communities and their own neighborhoods, and they become complacent. And when you become complacent to a system, uh, you know, you're silent with the injustices that, that go on. That's Shaniat Chowdhury, one of the first to volunteer for AOC's 2018 race. Chowdhury himself ran for Congress in 2020, challenging long-term incumbent representative Gregory Meeks, who's been in office since 1998 in New York's 5th Congressional District. Chowdhury was still running when we spoke to him, but he didn't win. I am running against Representative Meeks because I'm just sick and tired of working people being left outside the democratic process, and we need working-class representation here in New York 5. Do you know who your congressperson is? Incumbents who have gone unchallenged, in some cases for decades, are one of the major reasons we have a Congress that often doesn't seem like it represents the interests of regular Americans. AOC used the representation issue to her advantage. There was also a case to be made about Crowley not representing the district, that he was so ideologically and even demographically out of touch with the district that it created this unique vulnerability where you have an incumbent who hasn't been challenged in years and has forgotten how to campaign and then uh, is so far detached from the reality of what it's like to be a constituent and actually live in the district that that would open up some paths for her to get support from these people because they would feel represented for the first time. Almost nobody believed she would win. She was running against one of the most powerful and well-financed members of Congress, somebody who had full-time campaign staff, analysts, strategists, consultants, like guys with business cards and clipboards. But AOC had a team, too. Early on, she definitely had groups like Justice Democrats and she had other groups like Muslim for Progress who were helping her. But these were everyday people who were just your mothers, your teachers, you name it, your, your waiter, just coming together because she was, again, talking about values that really resonated with all of us. It was a small crew to start, and for many of them, the first campaign they'd ever worked on. And I remember at the time when I first started volunteering, there's probably about five or six of us at the time. So this is maybe February of 2018, still small, and we're still trying to figure things out, like how can we get more people involved? How can we go out there, get signatures? How can we do voter outreach? And it was just people who have never really had much political experience. So this was a campaign that didn't have the money to compensate high-level advisors, high-level campaign managers. It wasn't like that. It was a bunch of grassroots organizers who might have had very few or too little campaign experience, maybe none. And this is the first time just learning on the go 
and figure out how can we do this. So it was literally every day, it was just trying to figure out, all right, what can we do? What can we do? Just because we didn't know what to do, uh, but we were learning. And I think things really did change. Here's Noreen Actor. So much electioneering we had heard at that time from establishment candidates were about, oh, how Trump is bad and Trump is this and we're going to take him down. And very few people spoke to the real life issues or the lived experiences of the community. And so when Alex would speak to supporters or folks in the community, she really drilled down on the day-to-day experiences. What's your housing experience like? How much has your rent gone up? How are you paying for health care? And these are the things that matter to ordinary people. And so when you have someone who can speak to those issues and speak to really elegant solutions to those issues, that's what rallies people. And that's what inspires people to come out, knock on doors, and ultimately go to the ballot box. But would it be enough? Money is important. In politics, the people funding you often determine your platform and whether or not you win the election. We all got to make money somehow, right? I do not have a grassroots funding operation, so here's an advertisement. It's primary election night. We're at the end of AOC's campaign against one of the Democratic Party's most powerful members. She's running a campaign driven by passionate volunteers and small-dollar donations. What happens? Here's Shania Chaudhary. I will never forget that night. Crazy story. Before I actually even went to the campaign office, I was doing last-minute voter outreach to people who are st- were still in the streets. And so I was, I was not too far from a couple of polling sites in Jackson Heights. And as I was talking to people, I see a car pull up. A fancy car, and out comes Joe Crowley and a few other people. It was his entourage, and it was just me and like three other organizers against these few big, powerful people. And I remember as Joe Crowley was introducing folks, letting them know to go vote for him, a voter turned around and looked at him, and he said he was just not going to vote for him because he sold out our communities. So I was making the cake for the election night party. And uh, I had the last kind of election day shift in Park Chester. So basically just standing 100 feet away from a polling location, handing out lit, making sure people had uh, gone to the polls and if they hadn't, then directing them accordingly. And um, that is where Alex ended up at the end when polls closed. A bunch of us were gathered in front of Ellie's diner, packing up the table that we had set up there. Alex gave a few remarks. And then we just loaded up into a few cars and drove over to the pool hall where we were going to have the watch party. And I remember starting to look at the results coming in. I think it was like 1% reporting and like had her like a 13 point lead. And I thought I was like, this is bananas. I tried showing it to her. She wouldn't look. She didn't want to look. I dropped them off. And then I kick myself now, but I went to go look for parking instead of just parking at the first spot I could find. But As I was circling around the block looking for parking, I got a text from uh, someone who was organizing for Crowley saying, congratulations. And so that's when I knew uh, I pulled over. I don't know where I put my car, but I ran over to the pool hall. And by then, everyone was screaming. Everyone in in that room was just ecstatic. (laughs) 
on television right now. How are you feeling? <laughs> Can you put it into words? Nope. <laughs> I cannot put this into words. Progressive organizers, the folks who fought for the issues in AOC's platform for years, watched as one of their own took down an establishment giant. Here's Bianca Cunningham, co-chair of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. And I remember the day of the uh, election, I was out and, you know, it was so funny because I was uh, one of the things I had volunteered for, you know, after canvassing or doing GOTV was to be a poll observer where you just watch the, the folks, um, you know, count the votes at w- once the polling site closes. And so I was in Queens doing that. And I remember we had ran, um, you know, a couple city council races before, did better than what we expected, but kind of like you know, didn't win. <laughs> and, and, you know, I had kind of like become kind of like used to the fact that the left would just lose. Like we would put up a good fight. We would get our issues out there and that's the win, right? You're not going to actually win. Um, and I remember seeing the final tallies on the, on the, on the wall in my polling site. And I said, well, and I called in reporter. I said, well, in my polling site, you know, she won by, you know, whatever it was, seven or eight votes. It was a small polling site. Um, and then my phone just started to ring. Well, in my polling site, she won too. In my polling site, she didn't. Well, does she have a chance to win? And well, you know, you know, whatever. And I remember just sitting on the thing, and they said, "I think somebody sent me a message that I think she won." And I just started crying, like I was just in disbelief. And the polling workers are looking at me, "Are you okay?" <laughs> like I just don't know what to say. And I went home. I didn't go to the party that night with everyone else. I went home, and I was just in shock. And I watched it all you know, on the news. And um, it was it was really great. It really felt like a David Goliath moment, for sure. Suddenly, everyone was paying attention. AOC is national news. Everyone's talking about the millennial woman who took down the political machine, the democratic socialist who won, the insurgent who beat the establishment. New York 14 is safely democratic, so AOC wins the general election with ease. Immediately, she demonstrates that she'll be an activist in office. Here's Aida Chavez. If you look at her first big move after winning the primary, actually, she hadn't even entered office. This was weeks before she was even sworn in. She participated in a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office with Sunrise protesters. I just want to let you all know how proud I am of each and every single one of you for putting yourselves and your bodies and and everything on the line to make sure that we save our planet, our generation, and our future. It's so incredibly important. Have you ever seen Democratic member protest their boss so publicly? The optics of it, I think, were really powerful and showed how she wanted to like redefine what it meant to be an elected official. The Sunrise Movement is a political organization fighting for action on the climate crisis. Joining that protest was just the beginning of AOC challenging how the Hill operates. So it's 2020, and AOC herself is up for re-election. Has she lived up to the promises of her campaign? What did she accomplish in her first two years in office? As of April 2020, Representative Ocasio-Cortez has missed five votes in the House. In his final term, Representative Joe Crowley missed 117. Here again is Bianca Cunningham of NYC Democratic Socialists of America. 
I think she's done a phenomenal job. I think that it must be an immense amount of pressure to be a freshman, <laughs> to come in with the politics that you have in the way that you did, ousting the person that you did that was wildly popular. People had known this person for decades, right? And <laughs> served alongside them. It can't be easy to go in with the stigma of being outsider or to the left or there to cause chaos and not to do the job. I think she's done the job. I often talk to other organizations on the ground in New York City, and I'll say, you know, she may be a little bit hard to get on the phone, but is she doing the job that we all had hoped that she could do, that she would do when she got there? And that answer is always a resounding yes, no matter how upset the person is, right? I think that she's carrying the torch in a remarkable way. Um, she's a sister in the struggle to make, you know, our country and, and the world um, a more just and equitable place. Let's go to Aida Chavez to look at what she sees as AOC's biggest impact. The two biggest impacts of past year have been the way she stands up to the Democratic Party and has redefined what it means to be a member of Congress. Like It shows you can take the dual roles of activist and member at the same time. Besides that is expand people's idea of what is politically possible. I think so long... With the status quo, people don't even entertain ideas just because they think, well, that'll never happen. So they don't even try to like dream bigger. One big idea, the Green New Deal. Be it resolved that it is the sense of the House of Representatives that, one, it is the duty of the federal government to create a Green New Deal. A, to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions through a fair and just transition for all communities and workers. B, to create millions of good, high-wage jobs and ensure prosperity and economic security for all people in the United States. C, to invest in the infrastructure and industry of the United States to sustainably meet the challenges of the 21st century. D, to secure for all people of the United States for generations to come. One, clean water. Two, climate and community resiliency. Three, healthy food. Four, access to nature. And five, a sustainable environment. And E, to promote justice and equity by stopping current, preventing future, and repairing historic oppression of indigenous peoples, communities of color, migrant communities, deindustrialized communities, depopulated rural communities, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, and youth, referred to in this resolution as frontline and vulnerable communities. The Green New Deal isn't yet law. It's just a resolution. It's a proposal for how America might extricate itself from the death march of the climate crisis and create a lot of jobs doing it. While the Green New Deal may be AOC's biggest idea so far, she's also become infamous for her hearings, taking on bankers like Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. Do you think that more folks should have gone to jail for, the, for their role in a financial crisis that... Uh, led to 7.8 million foreclosures in the 10 years between 2007 and 2016, Mr. Diamond. Jared Kushner. Folks are suggesting that we are conducting foreign relations with folks with security clearances via WhatsApp. I mean, every day, 
that we go on without getting to the bottom of this matter is a day that we are putting hundreds, if not potentially thousands of Americans at risk. I mean, really, what is next? Putting nuclear codes in Instagram DMs? This is ridiculous. And Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Congresswoman, I don't I don't know that often. You don't know. This was the largest data scandal with respect to your company that had catastrophic impacts on the 2016 election. You don't you don't know. I haven't seen anyone own Mark Zuckerberg that hard since Rooney Mara in the first scene of The Social Network. But what does the future look like for AOC and the greater progressive movement? This movement cannot be on the shoulders of one person. And that's exactly why I decided to run, because people like AOC, they can't do it alone. If you want to really see the the revolutionary changes that we want to see, we need people to run for office who share these similar progressive values. Here's Aida Chavez. I think now that people have seen like this is possible, that's going to open the door to more people trying. And of course, it's going to be an uphill climb. Like a lot of these people are going to lose. It's not something that's going to change in a matter of years or even in a matter of elections. It's going to take generations. But more people are going to be trying now and putting themselves out there because they've seen that it is possible. Like, it's kind of like that first step that people needed. Even though Chowdhury didn't win his primary, a couple other progressive challengers did, like Jamal Bowman in New York's 16th, who unseated 30-year incumbent Elliot Engel. And AOC herself easily defeated her challenger, Michelle Caruso Cabrera, which means AOC will almost certainly serve another term in Congress. Remember, everybody starts somewhere, and all politics is local. If you're looking for a place to get involved and make a difference, start at home. That's where the change does happen in our own backyard. It's not the president of the United States that comes into our communities. It's really everyday people who are running for office to be representative of our communities, right? So we're the ones that are living these experiences every day, and those experiences matter. Here's Noreen Actor. Our public education system absolutely fails in teaching civics. The fact that one does not learn how to run for office apart from volunteering for a campaign is a travesty. I think it's something that should be taught in every high school. You should get school credit for volunteering for a campaign because these are the pathways to power. If you don't learn how to organize your community, if you don't learn what a field operation looks like, what it means to have meaningful and sometimes difficult conversations with your neighbors. We are never going to fundamentally change how things are done in this country and who holds the power. Back in 2016, I just started asking folks around me, people who I knew were involved in politics for many years, basically asking the question, where do I start? Where does one begin? How can I help? And the resounding advice was start locally, get involved locally. And so that's what I did. A few friends and I got together and we formed Muslims for Progress. We had huge social networks of friends and family who were convening at mosques, convening for iftar and other social get-togethers. And so we really wanted to mobilize that community and create the civic knowledge and civic education and get them to vote as a block to realize their power as a community. So where is this all going? I asked Bianca Cunningham. And looking into the future, um, 
Obviously, the election is confusing now. You have, we barely see the <laughs> candidates anymore. Obviously, we're trying to ignore the pandemic in the room. Where do you see the movement headed? Sean, Sean. <laughs> These questions. Where do we see the movement headed? I, in some ways, feel like the moment that we're in is awakening of a new dawn. I know that might sound really cliche and corny, but I figure we have to come out of this collectively with some sort of like, uh, some with something, <laughs> with some sort of analysis, with some sort of radicalization, or, you know, I can't imagine that people are stuck in their homes for months, um, seeing mass failure of almost every system that we put our trust in, whether it be the economic system, or the healthcare system, any of these systems, people are just going to have like, there's going to be mass unemployment and mass disappointment. And I don't know if that's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back to wake people up to realize that this is why we're calling for Medicare for all. This is why we're calling for uh, reclaiming our tax dollars (laughs) to say what we want to spend them on. It's really that simple. It's really, really that simple. And I don't know what it's going to be like. But I think that the circumstances to which we're living in now combined with what happens at the Democratic National Convention this summer really informs where we go from there. And so it's so hard to say at this moment. The spread of coronavirus has shown that the social and economic structure of the United States was less stable than the blanket fort I built to record this podcast episode. Millions of people have lost jobs. Millions more lack health insurance. More than 130,000 Americans have died. And by the time you hear this, that number could be higher. A lot higher. Things seem pretty dismal. But it was dismal times that inspired AOC to run for office in the first place. I think 2016 was an amazing year for, I mean, it wasn't an amazing year nationally, but it was a year of awakening for a lot of individuals. I found myself at the end of 2016 at Standing Rock. I found myself in Flint, Michigan, and I just felt like at this point, we have nothing to lose. That's right. We have nothing to lose. And even in a, in a race that just seemed impossible, as, as it was even three months ago, um, even on long odds, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Remember what Amy Goodman said at the beginning of the episode? If you aren't satisfied with the elected officials that represent you, maybe you should run for office. AOC did, and she won. What's next for AOC? We can only speculate. Hmm. I'm not sure. I think she's pretty interested in just building power wherever she can. She does come from movements, and so she thinks in terms of movements and maybe not like her own career moves. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in years she primary like Chuck Schumer or something. I'd like to see that. I think that sounds like the kind of thing that she'd be open to. Obviously, I can't speak for her. But for the foreseeable future, she's really going to try to bring more AOCs into office with her. And that's why she started that pack to support insurgent candidates. A true representative government is filled with legislators who represent their constituents. But right now, many of them represent moneyed interests, their donors, who have far more access to politicians than the people who elected them. That's why grassroots organizing is important. If the people can outraise and outhustle the money in politics machine, we'll elect different kinds of politicians. Politicians who will be beholden 
to the people, not big business or the rich. Here's one of AOC's first speeches as a candidate in 2017 to a small crowd in Queens. Because what makes America different is that we are a nation of ideals. And the things that make us a country are not lines in the sand, but ink bled on paper that, 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 uh, that outline our notions and our ideas that tell us that ours is a country of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, of equality and freedom. And that is why we fight, because our side fights with organizing. We fight with educating. We fight with understanding. And we fight with love. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. My name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Thank you so much for joining me again this season. We've got another great 15 episodes coming. And trust me, they're not all as cheery. Next week, another young woman of color doing something very different. Former South Carolina governor and former ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. A sincere thank you to our guests, Noreen Actor, Deputy District Director for Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Aida Chavez, who covers Congress and politics at The Intercept, Shania Chowdhury, an activist and insurgent candidate who challenged Representative Gregory Meeks in New York's 5th Congressional District, and Bianca Cunningham, a former co-chair of the New York City Democratic Socialist of America and a co-founder of the DSA Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kinsey Clark is our associate producer. Welcome to the team, Kinsey. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Welcome to the show, Ron. Our executive producers are Nancy Kahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Adakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to PJ Evans, Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Who Is, the podcast, season two. New episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe and tell all your friends.